Welcome to Better Leaders, the podcast, where we surface good leadership and smart management in media and beyond. Today, I'm talking to Giampiero Petrivieri, INSEAD professor and author. My name is Anita Zilina, and I'm your host. Welcome to Better Leaders. Giampiero, so excited that you can be here with us today for the podcast. Uh, thank you for taking the time. It's a pleasure to be here, Anita. <laughs> we'll, we'll talk a little bit about leadership and uh, the changes in leadership and management today. So for our listeners, uh, and some of them might not know you, although I think many of them, <laughs> many of them do, could you tell us a little bit about your, your career, your current work and what it focuses on? Yes. I'm a professor of management at INSEAD, and I'm particularly interested in um, leadership and learning in the workplace and how both affect not just what we do at work, but also who we are at work and beyond. And actually, in terms of my career, I originally trained as a medical doctor and as a psychiatrist, and I started in the field of mental health. And then, you know, for the twists and turns of contemporary careers, I'm not the only one who's made a radical career transition, I'm sure, among, among your listeners. I found myself moving into coaching and consulting and understanding sort of the, the human layers of the workplace and eventually landing at a business school where uh, I do research the humanity of leadership and I do a whole lot of uh, leadership development in this area. I'm very proud of having developed together with colleagues, not just by myself, not only a unique approach for experiential leadership development, but also a set of practices and a group of people, uh, a genuine community that actually brings this approach to life. Such an amazing, an amazing journey. And it's quite interesting to see how it brought you from actually, you know, studying psychology to then tapping into leadership to then making this your, your, your main job. I mean, can you reflect a little bit on what, what brought that change and what makes you so excited about those issues on leadership? Well, there was, um, there was a professional interest and a personal journey, and I think both mattered. And the professional part is always a matter of contention. People often ask me like, oh, what made you switch so radically from um, psychiatry to, to management? And I usually say, well, chance encounters. I was uh, invited to do some work in the field of coaching, and then I fell in love with um, with leadership development, and I realized the impact it could have on people and how it could actually help them live broader and more humane life and also make a difference in the life of others, which is, of course, what I was interested in all along. But the truth is that I don't feel I've actually changed career at all, Anita, to be honest. You know, from the very, very beginning, I've been interested in the unfolding of human lives in social systems. 
you know, and that's, uh, you know, I was interested in poetry because before going to medical school and, uh, I was interested in how the body worked and eventually, you know, I, I chose mental health as my specialization. And one of the thing I realized through those years of psychiatry training is that we had a lot of focus on the biology of mental illness and of course on the psychology of mental illness and the family of origin and your romantic relationship and your friends and and all that i mean there's a very solid understanding that you know our minds are deeply deeply affected by you know the people and systems around us and one of the things that i noticed is actually how much work mattered although in in mental health we didn't necessarily focus on that as much as other factors. It was obvious to me that, um, you know, work could, um, really pull people apart yeah. or help make them whole. It could keep them, you know, thriving or it could really hurt them. And so I have now made that the center of my work and I remain fascinated in how the workplace can you know, really splinters us and make yeah. us anxious and diminished version of ourselves or how it can actually allow us to express ourselves and learn and grow and maybe make a positive difference in, in the life of others and why not of broader communities. And, and of course, leadership is central to that because leaders are often the symbols and architects of those working systems or those working cultures that then deeply, deeply affect the course of humans' lives, mm. both at, at, at work and then at home. Yeah. And so I don't really know if, um, you know, if I've changed careers at all. <laughs> Doesn't sound like it. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I think I've just found a niche. Uh, and at this point, you know, I'm lucky enough that it's not even that much of a niche. It's really, it's really quite a patch that I've cultivated in which I can really focus on how do you help leaders build and sustain those sort of healthier work workplaces. Yeah. And that's both an individual learning problem. It's a relationship problem. It's a collective learning problem. It's a systems problem. And I'm interested in looking at that at, at all those levels, if you want, and not just understanding it, but also most importantly, practicing it, yeah. you know, uh, I mean, really do helping. I am a clinician at heart. Yeah. You still, you just changed perspectives, right? You just changed kind of how you work somehow with the problem, not, not really careers. It seems, you know, it's really interesting because when I was training as a medical doctor, we were always told, well, of course, medicine has to heal illness, but the very, very, very best medicine should actually be able to promote health. Yeah. To prevent illness and promote health. And I really do believe that, you know, working on leadership is to try to create the conditions that promote health. Yeah. For not just ourselves, but for a lot of other people. Mm. You know, I think leadership is not just an activity. It's also a metaphor for a way of being in the world. See, one of the most fundamental, for me, one of the most fundamental questions of the social sciences is, do systems shape people <laughs> or do people shape systems? And the truth is, we all know that 99% of the time is the former. Mm. Systems make us 
who we are. But we like to believe that on a good day, on a good moment, sometimes we can make a difference. We can have an impact. We can change systems for the better. And um, leadership is just a word for the quest to have more of those moments, more of those minutes, more of those situations in which we are not just objects, but we are subjects mm. in social lives. And, and I think a lot of my research shows that when we are saying, when many people say, oh, I want to become a better leader, they're not just talking about learning to influence others and reach goals more efficiently and effectively. They're actually talking about finding a way to live in a more expansive, in a more fulfilled, in a more significant way at work. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. You know, the, the language I use to describe that impulse is we're always looking to figure out how can we show up more? And uh, if we are not just selfish, but we're generous, we're also looking at how can we help other people show up? How can we free them up? And for me, these are two sides of good leadership. Yeah. How do you show up in a way that frees others up? Yeah, absolutely. That's such a, such a fascinating approach. And I, I'm a fundamental optimist at heart. So I do believe that there is a path where we can shape systems. Not every day, not every second. Sometimes, you know, and not, and not alone. Not alone. Definitely not alone. And sometimes not to our success, right? I think one of the fundamental experiences of, of management and being in senior management and uh, thinking mm. back on the senior management roles I had is that you don't succeed all the time, right? Sometimes the time's not right, or you just don't create that momentum, or the team is not right, or you just get tired and burn out before you even get to the point of like system change. And that's kind of a frustrating, <laughs> frustrating experience. And I don't know if you, if you encounter that with your, your students who are also managers and senior managers, that frustration of trying to shape and change a system, an organization, a team, and failing. Yeah. I mean, two things. One is, I would say, if you succeeded all the time, it means that you're probably playing at a much lower level than you should be playing. Hmm. Because it means that you are staying within, um, within a scope that is so comfortable and familiar and safe that you can always get done what you want done. I would probably even question where you're actually leading because if you're leading, you're always reaching past that realm in which you can always make it and into that realm where in which uh, sometimes you make it and sometimes you don't. And for me, the leadership is not in how much or how frequently you succeed, but it's in how do you handle that gap between your aspirations and the reality and the setbacks you encounter and all of that. Um, and to your question about frustration, I think, you know, if you're not prepared to handle frustration, then you definitely shouldn't lead. <laughs> Leadership is not for people who are looking for comfort or happiness. That's one of the greatest misunderstandings. If there was one single lesson that I could um, pass along would be that, you know, if you think you can lead well and be happy, you are setting an impossible standard for yourself. In fact, in many cases, frustration is really the source of leadership. Mm. 
Why do we lead? Why do we need leaders? Because there is a gap between the world as it is and the world as we hope it could be. And witnessing that gap very often, not just seeing it or understanding, but really feeling it viscerally, the injustice, the inefficiency that comes out of the fact that there is this discrepancy uh, makes us frustrated. So frustration is really the source, the origin of leadership. At the same time, as you say, frustration can't destroy us or limit us as a leader because frustration is necessary, but it's not sufficient. You need another ingredient in order for your leadership to be effective, for your leadership to be sustainable, that it's care. Yeah. Because very often if you, if you witness a discrepancy between reality and possibility and you're just frustrated, but you don't, or you can't care, then you do burn out and then you probably leave. And if you care, but you're not frustrated, you probably want to keep things as they are because you're comfortable. And so for me, leadership begins when we are frustrated enough that we want to do something, that we want to address some discrepancy, some gap between reality and possibility. And we care enough, and perhaps we are cared enough, that we can work with that frustration rather than be undone. Yeah, by that frustration. And I think that's true with sadness. That's true with anger. You know, that's true with anxiety. A lot of leadership is born out of heartbreak, fury, worry. And a lot of suffering is born of those very same feelings. And the difference is, are you able to work with those feelings? Do you have the cognitive, physical, relational, practical resources to work with those feelings. Otherwise, you're going to be undone by them. Hmm. And so for me, the question is always, how do we create the space in which the frustration that is inevitable, that is perhaps the seed of leadership, moves us hmm. instead of breaking us? And how do you... Like thinking about your students who are often high achievers, managers who already kind of, you know, left the mark with their career, who are moving fast. How do you instill that like reflective element and how do you help them kind of focus on that, that, that resilient approach rather than mm. just kind of running and breaking and rebuilding things? Well, first there's a cognitive part, which is what we're doing here, right? Normalizing this idea that if you're truly leading, you probably never feel that things are going well enough or fast enough because you are occupying, you are living in that space between reality and possibility. And you're, if, if you're a relatively good leader, a sane leader, you're trying to have a foot in reality and a foot in possibility. So it's likely that you feel the strain. So how do you handle that strain? For me, there's three elements. One is clarity. I think one of the most important aspects of leading well is being very clear about what is it that you're trying to do. There are many, many, many discrepancies between reality and possibility. There's many, many things that are wrong or that are good in the world, but not yet as good as they could be. What is yours? And just be very, very clear about what is your commitment instead of making many 
And I think that's one a little signal that anxiety or fear or sadness or rage are undoing as we spread thin. Mm. You know, what is mm. really stay close to the core? What is the one gap discrepancy you're trying to close? Two is consciousness, which is um, what is it going to cost you to try to close that gap? And very often leadership as a cost, and we don't want to admit it. For me, you know, bad leadership is everywhere. You see it is leadership that tells you you can have all the good stuff and we don't have to pay the price. Someone else will. That's not good leadership, but good leadership, honest leadership always acknowledges if we want to do that, we're going to have to give something else up. And maybe I was going to have to give something else up, something that maybe I held dear, you know, a certain way of working, mm. you know, how do I need to change so that I can unlock change? What needs to change within me so that change can become possible around me? And I think clarity needs to be paired with consciousness because clarity tells us what we are trying to do and consciousness tells us why we're trying to do it. Why is it worth going through all that tension, all that frustration and trying to get on the other side of that? You know, clarity gives us focus. Consciousness gives us hope, realistic hope. Yeah. And then the third leg, for me, the most important leg is community. Who else is committed to helping you lead and following you. And those are not exactly the same thing. Because for me, leaders need not just followers that wish them well and go along. Because sometimes if you have plenty of followers and you genuinely believe in what you're trying to do, that can actually become a source of pressure. You don't want to let people down. You also need people around you that sustain you. And I have to say the shorthand I use for those people is friends. Yeah. You know, and I, I think I'm doing, I'm working on a piece right now about the, the extraordinary importance of friends in the workplace, hmm. because friends are really those people that, first of all, they, they take our work seriously, our struggle seriously, but they don't take us so seriously. So they kind of lighten the load a little they put us in perspective. They are there, not just when we succeed uh, or when we fail for that matter, they're just there. And three, sometimes they think for us uh, when, when it's harder for us to, to think, or sometimes yes. they kind of help us stop without feeling bad about it. And you see, and I think leaders are always surrounded by a lot of people. And especially if what they're trying to do is clear and significant. Yeah. And for me, those people can be distinguished between those that are friends of their performance. Those are really following because they really wish for themselves that you do well because your success yeah. creates freedom, possibility, safety, whatever for them. And then you need to have some friends of your learning, people who are not just there to see you succeed, that, you know, that are there to see you healthy and sane um, while you're succeeding. Uh, and, and I think for me, that is uh, often one of the least, certainly in my practice experience, that's one of the least 
understood and cultivated part of leadership success. Mm. You know, that there's always a bias and especially because the people you and I uh, work with tend to actually be, as you said, very talented, very driven, and also very responsible. You know, they tend to be much, much more comfortable helping other people than getting out themselves and, and all of that. And so there tends to be a bias in that we tend to overestimate the importance of clarity and consciousness and personal resources and, and courage. And we tend to underestimate the importance of, of social support. Hmm. And in fact, um, a lot of my research and a lot of my leadership development practices makes this argument. Hmm. Good leadership development shouldn't target personal resources. It should target social resources. It should strengthen relationships, strengthens community. Why? Because when you're strong relationship and strong communities, individuals grow and become more effective and become more resilient as a result. Yeah. Individual resilience is a byproduct. Mm. This idea that we've long understood, you know, this idea that it takes a village, you know, it, it, it really is true. Yeah. And I think we, you know, especially in management, in business, we have such an individualistic lens on the leader. Do I have the right knowledge? Do I have the right skill? Do I have the right vision? Do I have the right strategy? Am I resilient enough? Am I doing enough meditation, uh, workouts, um, uh, and whatnot? And the question I throw into the mix is, do you have enough friends? (laughs) And are they actually good friends? Who do I know if they're good friends? Because you feel safer, saner, freer when they're around. You are more yourself in their company than you could be on your own. Yeah. And trust me, that's going to make you a lot more resilient than, uh, you know, another couple hours of meditation or yoga or uh, CrossFit. (laughs) It almost seems like it's getting, you know, harder to to focus on those social elements, the higher up you climb in a corporate career oh, yeah. because it becomes so, it f- suddenly feels so lonely, right? And you're pressured into that, that slot where you're like, oh, I'm surrounded by people who I can't really trust and I have to kind of fight for myself. And, you know, it kind of becomes, it becomes harder to open up and, and show that vulnerability and, and, basically have these kinds of conversations and time gets scarce and it's kind of this vicious circle of becoming lonelier and lonelier sometimes, right? Why do you think that is? Well, the easy way would would be to say, well, organizations are shaped that way, but I don't think it's that easy. I think it's a reaction to stress for many people. Like climbing high up on that ladder, I think becomes more and more stressful. And we, if we don't have, we know that a healthy way to deal with that stress would actually to spend more time with friends, to have more open conversations, to kind of, you know, take a step back. But I feel sometimes, and that's like speaking for myself, but also for people I work with, sometimes you're just kind of in, in that hamster wheel where you feel running faster is going to get you where you want to end up. So you don't even take the time to exactly. Yeah, I agree completely. And for me, all that is a symptom of a fundamental intoxication with individuality that we have in traditional and non-traditional careers. 
And uh, loneliness is just a byproduct of that. Mm. This idea that if you're good enough, you should make it on your own, that you should try to prove that you can run harder and faster, that you're not going to stop. And that if you stop and you take time for others, then maybe you are keeping your eyes off the ball or whatever silly metaphors we yeah. we want to use here. You see, I think once you understand work and management and leadership as an individual enterprise, you are gonna unconsciously perhaps replicate a system that generates loneliness. And uh, I don't think anyone has enough time. <laughs> God, and the, the fundamental fact is who knows how much time we have. I genuinely believe that leaders should never blame time. Yeah. And that every time we say we don't have enough time, it's because we don't have enough courage to make different choices. Hmm. And so once you see your career as an individual enterprise, once you're made to see it that way, once you're rewarded that way, of course, you're going to fall into a system that generates and perhaps rewards loneliness. Loneliness is like anxiety. is a great friend of the status quo. And so... You know, that there's that very famous quote by the anthropologist Margaret Mead that says, you know, you never, I don't remember the exact words, but it's something along the lines, like never forget that uh, a small group of people can actually change the world. <laughs> and what the quote is trying to say is on your own, you're probably going to get very little done. But once you are able to remember that social groups can be really very supportive and influential, that's when often change gets unlocked. So, you know, I don't think it's a matter of just not having time. It's a matter of believing that time spent cultivating relationships mm. is not what we should be doing. Yeah. Um, when in fact, it's precisely, it's precisely what we should be doing because it's going to increase your effectiveness. It's going to affect your well-being. It's going to increase your you know, sense of commitment. It sometimes will help you, you know, get through those setbacks and frustrations because uh, the moment might be dire and the place uh, might not be perfect, but we are here together trying to bring better times and make a better place. And that's worth it. Yeah, that's worth it. And if we don't have that feeling, if we don't cultivate that feeling, then it's like we're going to feel either, oh, I can't take it anymore or I'm doing it, but this is costing me so much. Yeah, I think that's such a helpful way to frame it and a helpful reminder. And I wonder, you, you, mentioned, you mentioned before that the niche, the so-called niche you're working on, is not a not really a niche anymore. I mean, th thankfully, it's, it's yeah. a big conversation that's happening, right? Goodness, and I wonder yeah. if that has, since you've been doing that work for a while, Do you feel that that kind of movement? Do you feel that we are having more honest conversations in business schools, in the management realm, in the boardroom? Or is that still, is that still, are we just seeing the tiny tip of the iceberg and the people we work with are, are thinking about resilience and friendships and connectedness? How do you kind of assess the past? years or decades of, of leadership work, I we think, make progress. Yeah. I mean, like you, I'm a, 
I'm, a, I'm an optimist, maybe a skeptical optimist, okay, but but an optimist. And I think, you know, for those of us who are in education, we can't afford to be cynical because if those of us who have the fortune to have access to rooms where people walk in every day trying to make themselves, their teams and their organizations better, if we let cynicism into those rooms, we really, we're screwed. Sorry to be yeah. so technical here. And so, you know, we must be optimistic and we also need to not lose the skepticism of, you know, I'm a social scientist after all. So my answer would be, I think I see a fair amount of movement and I certainly see a huge amount of longing. And for me, I am not so disturbed by the fact that I believe the desire is ahead of the rhetoric and the rhetoric is ahead of the practice. Mm. But for me, that's how a lot of change happens. You know, I certainly see, you know, I really work with um, managers across the range. You know, I still teach the MBAs in their late twenties and I work with very senior executives and CEOs, board members in the private and uh, sometimes in the public sector. And I don't make a distinction at this point. I think everyone is asking the question, how can we bring more humanity in the workplace? I think it's a very widespread understanding that, uh, you know, a high, hyper-technological, highly impersonal world of work doesn't do anyone any good. Yeah. Even those who do well in it. Yeah. Even those who do well in it. Because once you do well in it, then you start thinking, is this it? Is there's more to it than just, you know, being the finest cog in the finest machine? Still yeah. a cog in a machine. Golden cog, luxury machine, still cog, still machine. And for me, there's certainly, you know, organizations, certainly educational institutions like mine, but, but also companies have really embraced that rhetoric of um, learning and social impact. I mean, I, I don't know, I know any company that, you know, comes to campus either to recruit or to do executive education and doesn't say we're dedicated to learning. We want to develop talent. We want to become more agile, more innovative, more inclusive. We are extremely interested in, uh, you know, making a positive difference in the world. So we have embraced the rhetoric of humanism. However, we are still holding on to a fairly impersonal mechanical practice. Hmm. Okay. You know, and if I were to critique you know, traditional management education, for example, I would say that we talk a good game about um, building better societies you know, we still teach people about how to build better machines. Yeah. You know, what I think many of us are trying to do is to say there's nothing wrong with looking after the machinery of the uh, organization. But if you want a society, you can't just say, well, we got the plumbing and the roads and the hospitals. They're working fine. They must work fine. All that stuff has to be there and the electricity has to, has to be there and all of that. But then, you know, is there schools? Is there representation? 
is their courts. You know, then we start getting into concerns for development, for safety, for freedom, for justice, for equality, for sustainability. And for that, you can't just build machineries. You need to build commons. And in fact, I think many businesses get into trouble sometimes because they both with talent and with stakeholders outside, because they promise society to build societies and then they deliver machineries. Yeah. Yeah. And therefore, you know, there is a discrepancy and guess what? This is what we were talking about at the beginning, right? That's why you need leadership. And I think for, you know, in this particular day and age, you know, really perhaps the task of any leader is how do you make the practice catch up with the rhetoric Mm. so that the rhetoric doesn't feel hollow in the face of desire that is there. Yeah. And it's almost like we're in a, in an age where building those bridges between like the big vision and then almost operationalizing and, and making these things happen, like building those bridges becomes so much more important. I just feel like when in the conversations I have, I feel that there are so many people who are just overwhelmed by the change and the, you know, impending change and who, who yearn for someone or something to give them like answers and support in how do we actually get from, we all kind of buy into the overall idea, but how do we actually get there? So I feel that's an interesting observation. I don't know if you would agree with that, but I kind of, that's something I felt in the past years. Yeah, I I would agree with that. I, I wouldn't say this is a contemporary problem. Hmm. I mean, there has always been a bit of a mix of feelings towards leaders. You know, on the one hand, we want them to deliver us, to tell us that everything is going to be okay and um, all we have to do is have faith. And if only it was that easy. And then there is also resentment of leaders who do that because in the long run, they provide, as you say, very few tools, very, very little ways to actually work our way out of uh, difficult situations to build uh, a better place for ourselves and others. And so I think, you know, we fundamentally need to hold on to the idea that good leadership is not the one that puts forward the most inspiring vision, but is actually the one that provides the most meaningful work because it is one thing to offer us quick relief from our distress. And it's another thing to give us help as we work through it. Mm. And, uh, but I do, I think we've always fallen in love with leaders that provided insane and ultimately unrealistic <laughs> visions. We still do one year probably will in a couple thousand years. And we've then regretted yeah. that infatuation with those kind of leaders. So that's the more anxiety there is, the more likely that is to happen. And so because these are particularly tense and anxious times, then we see it a lot. Um, yeah. Then we see it a lot. And I think we must resist it. Yeah. There's not two ways around Do it. you see a, a generational difference? There is a lot of conversation about Gen Z, younger millennials, 
thinking different about leadership, about what they want from life, what they want from the workplace versus all the generations. Is it generational or is that just... To be honest, it's not really my lens. Hmm. It's not really my lens. The way I think about it is um, there have been secular trends, which of course affect the way generations feel what they're asked and what they're offered in the workplace, right? I mean, previous generations could realistically believe that if they gave their commitment to an organization, they would receive safety and freedom in return. And in that case, you know, you'd be willing to make sacrifices for organizations or for leaders. I think now for, uh, not for a number of years, but for a number of decades, people have experienced a lot of betrayal. They have witnessed leaders who ask others to make sacrifices they're not willing to make themselves. They've seen people in so-called leadership positions have opportunities that those that are supposed to follow never will have. And in those kind of situations, to be a little bit more skeptical, a little bit more detached, a little bit more mistrusting has nothing to do with the year you were born in. Yeah. You know, has to do with being a rational human being. You know, if you can't trust the promise, why would you not save your energy or think twice about what do you want and what can mm. you trust? So in some ways, you know, I think the byproduct of so much disappointment, so much disillusionment, so much betrayal is um, a little bit more consciousness. Yeah. You know, I think people are not going to go into the workplace automatically feeling it's going to be okay. I'm going to be taken care of as long as I work hard and I commit to this. And if that's not going to happen, then I'm going to ask myself, wait, why should I be doing this? <laughs> how much do I want to commit? And is this really how I want to spend my life? But I think people today, like before, remain willing to give themselves, even to give their lives for a meaningful cause. And anyone who leads should never forget that people are never really following you. You are just a proxy for an idea, for a wish, for a cause, for a dream. And the reason people trust you, the reason people follow you is because of that idea, that cause, that mm -hmm. dream. And I think if that idea is good and it's accessible and it's realizable, I think people are still willing to commit to it. Yeah. But if that idea is shaky and if that idea is clearly more beneficial to you than it is for them and might or might not have room for them anyway in, uh, in 18 months time, then people will keep yeah. you a little bit more at arm's length and good for them. Yeah. We're sadly nearly at the end of our conversation. So I'd, I'd love to, to end with a question that I ask all my guests. If you could go back in time and could tell yourself in the very early days of your career, your education, could give yourself a piece of advice on, on leadership, on life, on careers. What piece of advice would you share with yourself? Have faith in the work. That's all I That's would say. That's great. Have faith in the work. 
put in the work, the work, get better at what you're trying to do, get skillful, work on yourself, work on your relationships, have the difficult conversations. And sometimes it doesn't work. What are you learning from it? Don't have faith in the goal. Don't have faith in the promise. Don't have faith in people who have power. They're all they're, they're all good things. But at the end of the day, mm. the gesture, have faith in the work. So few people, Anita, have faith in the work. <laughs> they waste time. Yeah. All kinds of other things. Instead of, you know, being here, like the two of us are here and doing the work of trying to talk to each other, see each other, understand each other. And just that. And then maybe some listeners will find it interesting and yeah. useful, but that's all byproduct. And I find, you know, I wish I had understood it earlier that every time I admired someone is not because they were skillful or powerful or because they had got something I didn't have is because they were all in <laughs> to their work and they were just doing the work. And of course the work rewarded them. Amazing advice. Thank Faith you for sharing work. that, Jim. Put the work at the center. So many organizations put the strategy at the center, the vision at the center, the work. What is your work? That's great advice. Thank you for, for sharing that. And thank you for, for spending the time with us here today. It was wonderful to have that conversation with you. Great to see you and to reconnect. This was today's episode of Better Leaders. If you enjoyed it, please do follow us and subscribe. Thanks for listening. Missing Link 